showed up, pimping and cold up. I head straight to the bar just to post up. I roll the throw up, my cup mowed up. Bitch, don't just stand there with your nose up. Come on, wamp, wamp, what it do? What it do? Huh? Wamp, wamp, what it do? What it do? Wamp, wamp, what it do? What it do? Huh? Wamp, wamp, what it do? Hey yo, wamp, wamp, what it do? What it do? Wamp, wamp. What it do, what it do, this is Pusha T, that's Malice, Slim Thug on the hook, what it do. We are talking some fucking basketball because it is back. Last night I watched the Lakers defeat the Nuggets. Yeah, that's right, watched some basketball, stayed up late, almost almost 1 o'clock, way past my bedtime. Good shit, good shit. Andrew, what is your biggest takeaway from the NBA season so far? Biggest takeaway from the NBA season so far is... I was all right based on every single premonition that I had. So, thank you. Thank you, everyone who believed in me, but uh, I was 100% right. No, the biggest thing... All right, let's just end the podcast now. <laughs> yeah, just end it. No, my biggest, my biggest takeaway, honestly, has just been, I think, there have been a few teams that I think are going to be significantly, significantly better than expected, and I think they're going to make just sort of break up what we thought were pretty simple narratives in both conferences. For yeah. example, the Denver Nuggets being one of them. Okay, Denver Nuggets, the same team I watched lose last night, uh, right. featuring a 20-point game from... I'm going to look this guy up because I had never heard of him when I saw that he had 20 points. So this is some great fucking content here, me looking up some scores. Any plus content. Um... I think next podcast would just be all box score podcasts where we just look all that shit up. Um, you do like baseball perspective, like analytics podcast. Yeah. Okay. It was Monte Morris. You ever, you know, have you ever heard of him? I, I spent a disproportionate amount of my time um, watching basketball and thinking about basketball to the detriment of my social life and my professional life. And I don't even know who this person is. Yeah, he had um, he played twenty seven minutes, was six and nine from the field. Nice, <laughs> nice, uh, nice. Two for two from nice. three, six to six from the free throw line. 27, 20 points, seven assists, three steals. Wow, wow, wow. Um, he was a second round draft pick last year out of Iowa State. I my understanding is that he filled in for I, I guess like Jamal Murray got hurt or something, and he was filling in for a little bit. Murray played thirty four minutes though, so I think he's fine. Um, so how real, like that was the first loss of the year for the Nuggets. What is, how good do you think this Nuggets team can be? I think, I mean, okay. So I think I really enjoy what the Nuggets have done. I think philosophically, and I think that's translated into, you know, this, this start that they've had. So they basically said, look, this is the type of team we're going to have. These are the players we're going to have, and this is the direction we're going to go. We're going to extend our coach. We believe in our coach. We believe in our system. And, you know, where they were at with young players that were were on a path to be quite good, but we weren't quite sure, and a coach who has proven himself but isn't sort of a brand name, a lot of teams sort of second-guess themselves or sort of think, oh, we can do better, or maybe the path we're on isn't the right path. And and Denver Nuggets identified that, and they they said, no, this is the path we're going on. These are the the style of play we're going to play, and these are the players we're going to do it. So I think I think Denver can honestly be a lot like Utah was last year. I think I think Denver's really good. I think Denver is unquestionably a playoff team, but I think they could be anywhere from you know three to five. I would is even that, is that too optimistic? I depending on uh, some, depending on some things that one of one very specific thing that we'll discuss later in the podcast. Uh, I mean, I think there's I think they could be the two seed. I just think the Western Conference, everyone after Golden State, I think it is pretty lumped in together. Um, and you know, I like what Trey Lyles has done for them, but it's really hard not to think about what this Nuggets team could be like if they had just taken Donovan Mitchell instead of trading him away to the to the Jazz. Um, you know, I you know I don't know how that backcourt works, but I mean, I'm thinking that like a starting lineup of Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, Donovan Mitchell, Paul Millsap, and Jokic, even if none of those guys are, you know, a great option at the three, I think that's a very, very fun team. Um, but, of course, woulda, coulda, shoulda, not, doesn't really matter anymore. Um, I, I'm just still not buying that defense. Late in the game against the Lakers, they 
just any time the Lakers wanted to get a fast break bucket, they could get it off of them. Like the second the Nuggets miss a shot, almost guaranteed basket for the other team at some points. Um, and you know, I'm just not buying a team with Nikola Jokic at center. You have to play him so much because he is your best player, but that's inherently going to make is going to put a pretty low ceiling on what your defense can be if he's playing center for you. Yeah, it caps, it caps them out, definitely. And I think, so, I guess when we're having this conversation about surprising teams, it's I don't, I don't feel that Denver is, in fact, a contending team. But I think, I think what they're going to do is they're going to they're gonna be really uncomfortable matchup nightmares. They're obviously going to have flaws. They're going to play face teams where Nikola Jokic is going to be incredibly vulnerable, and it's going to be pretty bad. Their wings aren't great defenders. But I also think, like that Utah team, which had flaws and which was a matchup nightmare in most instances but was really exposed in other instances, they're going to sort of shake up this sort of balance of the Western Conference. And I think they're going to be a team that, one, they're going to be almost impossible to beat at home. Denver usually is, but Denver teams consistently usually are. But I think this team especially, and I think they're going to win a lot of games. And I think that, especially when you see a couple teams struggling or a couple supposed playoff teams struggling, I think – Denver is about as close of a lock as it comes, and I think that's gonna that's gonna be to the detriment of a team that was quite sure they were gonna make the playoffs. Yeah, and um, you know I don't even know how you deal with that. The uh, because like you said, them at home and them and Utah because of that altitude, it's exactly. I did. It's almost to the point where I just don't think that like there is no scenario where it is fair to put a team in a back to back on the second leg being in Denver or Utah. That's just you cannot let that happen at all through the NBA because that's a competitive disadvantage. That if I were the other team and I lost that game, I would be fuming at the commissioner for allowing that to happen. Um, now the Nuggets right now are in second place in the Western Conference behind a team that I actually am a lot higher on, and a team that when we talk about contenders, I think they could be in the contending category, assuming. Well, maybe not assuming, but like if Golden State suffers an injury, I think a team that could come out of the West is the New Orleans Pelicans, right now sitting at 3-0. and Yeah, well, because they have Anthony Davis. Well, they have Anthony Davis, and they're scoring more points than anyone else in the league right now by a pretty wide margin. I know they've played less games than everyone else, but 132 points a game. Oh, my. That Alvin Gentry offense is just right. humming. Well, it's humming one, they've just, I mean, I don't think Del Demps is a great general manager. Neither does David Stern. Uh, but, no. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't think David but, Stern's a great commissioner, so I guess it evens out. That's that. That's fair. No, I think I think they've done a really good job of adding complimentary pieces. I think the big question for me is, we had this, we, I think on our, uh, we have talked about this, I think, privately, not on a pod. Just about, you know, some of the depth that Golden's issues that Golden State may face, no matter how top-heavy they are. And I think the Pelicans also have a lot of the same questions, but they have less top-heavy depth. Like, sure, if Alfred Payton can play great, and if Etuan Moore can play great, yes, this is a team that is really, really scary. But how much are we buying into those guys being... Well, I think right now the bigger concern, like, if you think about... If you're thinking that... Right now, what they're doing is a bit of a mirage. I think the guy you got to point to is Nikola Miritich. I mean, I like Miritich a lot, but it's going to be... You're asking quite a bit of him to be averaging 28 points a game and getting, like, what the... How many rebounds is he is he averaging? Like, close to 10. Yeah, he's averaging 28, 10, um, 28 and 10, which is just not realistic to expect him to continue to average. But, no, do you think that Miritich could average 22 23 points a game. That, I think, is realistic. And Absolutely, I think, especially in, in Gentry's offense. Absolutely. And I think Randall, um, you know, right now he's averaging he's averaging uh, 19 points a game and just over 23 minutes a game. I think they probably want to keep him there where he can be super high energy. I think, I think he can continue to produce at a similar rate. Maybe you take it down to like 16 points a game. Like a six, 16 points a game is an and uh, eight rebounds, I think, out of Randall would be excellent from that. Um, but as you said, all of that, all of that is because of Anthony Davis. I think there's a there's a version of Davis where, you know, I think I think people maybe over the course of his career 
we've always kind of talked about him like, oh, Anthony Davis is, he is one of those best players in the league on maybe like close to a LeBron, Kevin Durant level. And we just continued to see him in the worst possible situations. And it might simply be a case where Anthony Davis has now reached a level where he's sort of like LeBron, where you don't need to have a great supporting cast around him to think, man, this is a team that can contend because that guy is so fucking good. Well, there's such a huge, and, and I grew up on Kevin Garnett, and I think, I'm trying not to make this simple comparison, but this situation reminds me a lot of what was going on with Kevin Garnett. And so the question then becomes, because Kevin Garnett is a Hall of Fame player, I mean, however you want to rank him in the history of the NBA, I would say maybe 20 to 30 greatest players of all time, something like that. Yeah. But but he's not, maybe 25, 30, but he's not... Um, He's not LeBron James, and so the question is, is Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, or LeBron James? And again, this sounds like a super basic, uh, unnecessary question, because they're both phenomenal, but that difference between being one of the greatest players of all time, and still, or a, just an incredible player, is going to determine whether or not they're contenders or not, because they don't have enough around them. So, if Anthony Davis is LeBron James, yes, absolutely, they could be cool. they could be cool to say. Right, well, it's right. like, are they... Is Anthony, like you said, Kevin Garnett is probably a top twenty to thirty player of all time, somewhere in that range. Yeah, he's a legend. If Anthony Davis, so you think that like for an Anthony Davis team, this like for this Pelicans team to win a championship with a, assuming Golden State gets an injury or something, because like obviously healthy Golden State is just not really a fair comparison for anyone. Um, no. But let's say they suffer an injury. Anthony Davis would have to be one of the 10 or 15 best players for them to win a championship. You think that's fair? of all time, not in the league. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of all time, obviously. If you uh, don't think he's a top 10 or 15 player currently, then you're a dumbass. Right. No, I think, yes, I think he, I think that's sort of the level they have to reach because, okay, so which player gets hurt on Golden State? Even if Curry or Durant gets hurt, I still think they're the best team in the league. I think Curry proved that, again, that, you know, they won 73 games with that team, you know, without Kevin Durant. And I know their depth is taking a bit of a hit. But but I, I agree. I think Anthony Davis will have to be, you know, an all-time sort of top 10 player for them to make the finals. And if he is, then... Well, I mean, yeah. the thing is, I just, I don't think that... I don't think that's completely unrealistic. Definitely. Because I think that, like, the numbers he's putting up this year... I mean, I talked about Miritich and Randall, how those are probably going to go down. I don't think it's insane to think that Anthony Davis could average 30 and 13 and, you know, like, five stocks. Is that crazy at all? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think higher than 30. I think Anthony Davis could average close to 35 points a game. Right. And so if Anthony Davis is, like, um, if he averages, like, 34... Like, let's say he averages, like, 33 points a game, 12 rebounds, and four or five stocks that and his defense like at that point you're talking about a guy who's like MVP and defensive player of the year simultaneously a guy who is a top three offensive player and the number one defensive player that's the level of player that can lead you to a championship even if your even if your second best player is Nikola Mirotic and if your third best player is Julius Randle yes but again I get the the Warriors again in almost in most years in the NBA, I think unquestionably we would consider the Pelicans a threat, right? Yeah. But the biggest question, and one of sort of the bummers, is this Golden State team is so good. Yeah. That even if Anthony Davis becomes LeBron, and even if Nicole Miritich becomes you know an all-star for a season, and even if Julius Randle becomes one of the most efficient bench players or role players, are they... Are, are they do they even have a chance to beat Golden State in the playoffs? Um, hmm. I think if one of them gets hurt. I mean one of Curry and Durant. Yeah. So I, I think the way, like, I think the scenario where this happens is Curry Durant gets... getting hurt would probably be the biggest one, though, because that's a guy you can kind of put on Davis. Uh, eh. Well, who else was eh. in the garden? Draymond? Well, I think that, like, I think the combo of, like, I'd want Draymond on him, and then you keep kind of keep Boogie shading towards the basket to prevent him from driving. Okay. I think that's the way you do it. 
Um, but I'm just saying that, like, if Curry goes out, we've sort of seen it with Durant where I, I, this is going to sound a lot more uh, haterific than I'm trying to come across as, but, like, we have seen it where Durant can sometimes be a little ball hoggy and a lot of times that's a good thing. Like, especially when he was in Oklahoma City, that was a good thing because... You know, even a bad shot by Kevin Durant standards is higher percentage than a great shot for like Andre Roberson standards, right? Um, but I think with Golden State, sometimes with Kevin Durant, when you get the ball into him, the ball stops moving quite as much. And at that point, you're limiting what you can get out of someone like Clay Thompson or someone like Andre Iguodala or especially someone like Draymond who has to rely on other people to set up the offense for him. Uh, okay. Um, sure. Is that haterific? Yeah, it's very haterific. It's a, I, think, I mean, I think, yeah, there are instances where every sort of elite offensive player can sort of become a black hole, but... Kevin Durant of, you know, the high-scoring superstars is one of the sort of the best ball movers and sort of someone who who can get his teammates involved. He, in comparison to other sort of like the T-Max or the Kobe Bryant or sort of these, or James Harden even, like I think he does an excellent job of moving the ball, partly just out of necessity because he has Clay Thompson and, and stuff. Right. I mean, I would, I would, to clarify, I mean, I would argue that I think James Harden is a better passer than Durant. Right, but I'm talking about just moving the ball in the flow of the offense when you get it and making a quick decision on it. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. That's what I'm talking I'm not talking about in terms of pure passing ability. I'm talking about in the flow of the offense, you know, swinging the ball, things like that. I think Kevin Durant is is one of the better superstars at that. Right, and I, you, you wonder... Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Um, and he has done a pretty good job with Golden State of knowing when to pull back and let everyone else... Uh, sort of take the reins and then he knows when it's like all right you know there is like two minutes left in this game it's game three at Cleveland I need to fucking step up to score these last eight points and we're gonna win this fucking basketball game and win this championship you know all four of them have done an unbelievable job for how talented they are right sort of knowing when to pick their spots and knowing how to fit and I think that is why I think I consider Steve Kerr a top three to five coach in the league I think he doesn't get it. Like it was the same thing with Spolstra. I think coaching great teams is, is more difficult than people think. And I think someone like I don't I don't know how much responsibility Kerr has. Again, I don't want to take away any of the, this sort of genius from the players because I think these are brilliant players. But I think that the, also the coaching staff of of Gold State deserves a lot of credit in oh. this as well. Oh, they absolutely do. And yeah. I mean, you I will say like. How much influence did like Alvin Gentry have on building this? Because as we mentioned earlier, he's done an incredible job in New Orleans. Like, did he play a role in helping to build this with Steve Kerr? I would think that um, I, I think it's more tangential influence. Um, but a lot of the stuff we talk about it being so easy, and yet Mark Jackson did not have the same results. And I'll be that's at my those- point. That's my point. I mean, that's why I think coaching great teams is difficult. I mean, I, I think. We, I mean, give Phil Jackson credit. He knew how to deal with great players, and he, that, that was um, part of the reason for his success. And I think we've seen, and when we see coaching changes, I think we've seen pretty good coaches just not be able to coach great teams and great players. Tangential, sort, sort of side note, how much do you think that um, Phil Jackson's success had to do with the fact that he's like really, really tall? Because I'm just thinking that, like, there has to be a, there's like, there's undeniably a mental thing to when you're looking up to someone physically or looking down on them physically. Zero, zero, because Kurt Rambis was the coach of the Timberwolves and he was probably the worst NBA coach I've ever seen. Right, I'm not saying that, like, being tall guarantees being a great coach, but I think it has to help. Of course, flip side is that, like, um, what's his face? Isn't, like, Spolster pretty short? Yeah, how tall is Popovich? Uh, Greg Pop. He's probably taller than you think. Yeah, he's probably like six three, six four. He's six two, which is the perfect okay. height, according to some. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't know. Um, yeah. Did you ever hear the stories? Of, okay, Spolster's also only six two. Um, 
Did you ever hear the stories of like people like there's a story of like some guy saw uh, Wilt Chamberlain at the airport and he was like, "Hey, what's the weather like up there?" And then Wilt's like, "It's raining," and spit on the guy. No. Yeah. I never. It's a very true story. Speaking of spitting. Oh, I we can't, I can't even get into yeah. this fight. No, it's, no. It's too late. It's, it's it's also just kind of dumb. Well, well, the thing is, like, I find that you know, I had a on the on the Reed Foster podcast, I had a discussion about how uh, it was during last year's like NBA and NHL playoffs, where like I think there's a lot of things that are a lot of fun to watch, but maybe not as much fun to talk about. And then there are certain things that are the inverse, where like I think the NFL draft is a lot of fun to talk about, so much fun to talk about, but not nearly as fun to watch as like the NCAA tournament. And I feel the same way about this fight. It's really funny to watch, but like at a certain point, you're trying to break it down into dudes who I just don't fucking know. Like I don't know Chris Paul that well. I don't know Rajon Rondo that well. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. Not trying to like armchair uh, psychologist this or whatever. Well, yeah, I think that's something we should avoid. <laughs> right. Because I think people are doing that ad nauseum. Right. Um, and, okay, so did we talk about the China effect on the podcast? Are you there? Okay, now I can hear you. Um, hey, what's up? Okay, so yeah, cool. So that was the that was the China effect. Um, yeah, so we didn't no. so we didn't talk about it on the podcast. Um, for those who missed it, no, 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 no. Ethan Strauss uh, pointed out how last year the Warriors and uh, I believe it was the Timberwolves struggled out of the gate after doing after playing some preseason games in China. Because they never really had enough time to acclimate their bodies back to the time zone before the season started. And so it took them a few, took them about a month to catch up. And as someone who occasionally flirts with gambling, um, I had been tracking this. And the 76ers and the Mavericks are the two teams that uh, went to China this year. And so I tracked it. I've been following the Sixers closer with it than the Mavericks because I'm just not as interested in the Mavericks. Um... Right now, what do you think Philly is against the spread on the year? <laughs> like, what is their record? Yeah, against the spread. Uh, how many games have they played? Five. Uh, one and four. Yep. One and yes. four against the yes. spread. They're, yes. they're two and three straight up, but like one of those wins was against the Magic at home by one. And actually, the only cover the Sixers have had all year was against the Bulls. And that was the game, I'm not sure if you remember watching it, but they were they gave up 41 points to the Bulls in the first quarter of that game. Yep, I so, watched that because I, I still love Zach Levine. Right, so it's not like they even came out swinging in that game either. Um, and so that's why I think that, like, that, that China hangover is something to keep in mind because, you know, Philadelphia right now, two and, two and three – when they started up with games against the Bulls, Magic, and Pistons, you'd figure they'd have a winning record, but yep. they don't. And well, I think a lot of that can be attributed to the China thing. Well, something we talk about a lot, and I don't think gets talked about enough, is this idea of what, how thin of a line it is to succeed in professional sports. Like the gap between great players and good players and just success and failure. Because this is such a, there's such a low margin for error. And if you just think about this logically. The idea that going to China, this a ridiculous flight, and then you know practicing, playing, and coming back, and that leaves very little margin for error. I mean, anyone who's traveled internationally, who's who's tried to adjust to their work after you know, when I when I just turned back. Yo, are you back? Hey guys, this is Ray Foster trying to kill time until Andrew's thing comes back. But he... Andrew is not talking back on the FaceTime. I can't hear him. 
I can hear him again. Now, Andrew, please continue. <laughs> uh, the, the synopsis was that going to China is difficult. Yeah, okay, that's hard. And, that's good analysis. Um, as someone... As someone who has flown um, to Thailand and back, I can say that flight was... It took a lot out of me. That's took. what I was saying. And it was also the, the line the, the line between succeeding and failing in the NBA is so thin. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking to myself, like, how, like, different do you operate if you get, like, six hours of sleep instead of eight hours? Or, like, four I'm hours instead of six? Right. The difference between two hours is massive. Yeah, and so, you know, I, I, I don't know about those guys, but, like, personally, I can't um, – it's pretty fucking difficult for me to sleep on a plane, especially that long. Um, you know, I, I was able to sleep on the way to Thailand because I had a layover in Amsterdam, which I had some aid sleeping. Um, ah. Yeah. Uh, nice. What do you call it? Um, so I think that's just something to keep in mind. Um, now, a team they, as you mentioned, one of the teams they lost to earlier this week at Detroit, the Pistons. That's right, the yes. Detroit Pistons, undefeated. That game featuring a 50-burger, a fucking 50-burger from Blake Griffin. Love it. How, how real do you think this Pistons team is? Uh, not that real. I think they're. I think they're. They, they they could probably win more games than we thought. I think Dwayne Casey is an underrated coach. But I think that's fair. I don't. I don't. I don't really consider them a contender. What about you? Um, I I think their depth is pretty awful. I mean that like you're giving yeah a lot of minutes to like Langston Galloway and like Zaza Pachulia and like Luke Kennard. Right. Um. But I do think that, like, Blake Griffin... I think if Blake Griffin stays healthy the whole year, and that obviously is the the thing that's sort of underpinning all of this with the Pistons. But if he could stay healthy, I'm a believer that he could put up great numbers right now because he's completely reinvented his game. He still has a little bit of, of that above-the-rim specialty every now and then, but he's a much better ball handler than he's ever been, and he's shooting the lights out of the ball from three. Obviously, he's not going to shoot 65% on the year, but he's averaging six attempts a game. I mean, I don't think there's... The way you look at his shot, I think it's very possible that he averages like 40% from three this year. And if that's the case... this is great. And there's no reason at that point why he couldn't average something like 27 and 12. A good Blake Griffin is is awesome for the league, but I think you just have to ask yourself. So so I think probably a fringe playoff team before the season started. They're probably locked into the playoff uh, I don't know about I wouldn't I don't if know Blake if I'd say Griffin's locked. If Blake Griffin's gonna if Blake Griffin's gonna play like this, I think they're locked in. Okay, yeah. If he stays healthy Because and... I don't think that I exactly. But that just shows again how as you're talking about the trip to China, how thin the line between success and failure is. And the Pistons have basically no margin for error. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I like Drummond next to Griffin. That's just, that's maybe the best front court in the uh, in the East, outside of like Boston and Philly and Toronto. <laughs> outside of the three best teams. Yeah, um, and I guess Milwaukee if we're counting Middleton there too. Never mind. Uh, never mind. That was a dumb. That was a dumb comment. <laughs> what am I talking about? But but I just watched Toronto play recently, and I'm all in on Toronto. Yeah, I mean, I'm at the, I'm at the point in Toronto where like, I'm I'm not sure that I I'm not sure that they even need to uh, I'm not sure they even need to like make a Jimmy Butler trade. I think this team, if gold, if there's any hiccup with Golden State, I think Toronto at this point is completely ready to pounce. Um, I'm you know like I'm I've been a lot higher on some of their players than other people have, namely the well, Triangle it, Man it, himself, it, it, Pascal Siakam. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was about to say, uh, no, all I was going to say is that you're, you deserve a lot of credit for this. You have been on the Toronto Role Players for some time. Okay, yeah, thank you. As somebody's been here. I mean, I'm just, I've been... Um, s- Squire Leonard's just... 
Yo, the connection back? Yeah, it's a bit back. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, so you said that Kawhi Leonard is... It's just that good. Yeah. He's, uh, he's pretty fucking incredible. Yeah, he's that good. He's, he's unbelievable, and I think, unlike with Anthony... So, unlike Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard has this incredible supporting cast around him, this infrastructure, and this team, whereas I think that the... He'll have this ability to, you know, sort of reach a higher plateau than, say, um, I think they're just much more dangerous of team than, say, New Orleans, or, say, when it comes to facing the Warriors. Absolutely. And what we talked about last year, that where Toronto, you know, them they go about 10 deep. And what's important about that is not necessarily the idea that they're going to play 10 players every single game. Because that's not realistic, especially come the postseason. But what it allows you to do is to, to be able to mix and match those lineups up depending on the matchup you face in the playoffs. And that doesn't matter as much if your best player is DeMar DeRozan, who he was awful in the play, playoffs last year. Let's, let's just be honest with ourselves. He was terrible. He's not going to I mean, Kawhi Leonard is not going to be that bad. And when you're slotting all those role players around Kawhi Leonard instead of around um, DeMar DeRozan, I mean, I think you see the effect with Kyle Lowry this year. Because last year, there were a lot of times when he had to pick up the slack and be the best player on the floor. And he can only do that for about a quarter of a t- at, the, at a time in the playoffs against teams like Boston or Philly or Cleveland last year. Um, I don't think Kawhi is going to disappear like that. I learned at a very young age, um, just by watching Garnett, that a, a transcendent great player can make every single player on the court better. And you, you learn this lesson, you know, growing up playing AAU basketball and high school basketball and stuff. And to me, like Kawhi Leonard does that, and that's the that's the, the difference between a really good player DeRozan and just an unbelievable player Kawhi Leonard. And I think because we didn't see Kawhi last year, we we. Our memories are always so short, we forgot how just fucking insane he is. Well, and let's just be honest with ourselves, he's never been necessarily... His offensive game is not fun to watch, really. It's a very... For, me- for like, the broader audience, yeah. Right, like, he he scores, like, a methodical 24 points a game. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I think a lot of people, they all they always prop up Kawhi as, like, the best wing defender we've seen since like Scottie Pippen, but they don't talk about how he's also a top 10 offensive player as well. That guy can get his own shot pretty much at will. Uh, is just, you know, we have to give him all the credit in the world. Yeah. I just getting, just getting ahead of the game consistently. Every time he's been a general manager, either with the mellow trade, with trading Rudy Gay, with doing all these things that he has, he has done a marvelous job. He has. And I think right now, I think the guy that has completely surprised me with the Raptors and the guy that we were talking before the year about them potentially making a Jimmy Butler trade, he was a guy I kept trying to include in the trade because I didn't know how he fit on this team. And that's Serge Ibaka. But I think especially we saw in the Boston game earlier on this year, Serge has has been able to slide in and effectively play a modern five, which is what they need because... What Al Horford gives the Celtics, I don't think he's... I mean, you, I think you could argue like Al Horford's like their fifth best player. But I think you could argue he's their most important player and their most difficult to match up with because Horford is the type of center where if you put someone like Joel Embiid out there, he's going to bring him out to the bat, out to the three-point line and drive it on him every single time. And then if you have a tiny-ass center, like if you play like a Siakam at center lineup, Horford's just going to take it in and post up on him. And so there's nothing you can really do with that unless you have a guy like what Ibaka is this year who's large but also mobile enough to keep up with Horford. For, for, how, sorry, for how specialized the league is and for how specialized sports become, it's still diversity and diversification of how you play still really, really matters. And the best teams can play various styles, depending on matchups, and they can offer wrinkles and looks and creativity. And Serge Ibaka, with his ability to block shots, his ability to shoot, his ability to just play defense on different members, makes takes this team to a new level. 
Right. If he can continue it. Well, and like you said, your ability to win different ways. Uh, I'm going to make a cross-sport reference because I'm, in many ways, I'm in football mode right now. Uh, you right. look at what the Eagles did last year en route to their Super Bowl championship. Their first playoff, <sighs> their first playoff win was against the Falcons, a 15 to 10 slugfest, and then they win the Super Bowl in a game where no one punts, and they win 41 yeah. 38. Two completely. They, they scored 38 points against like arguably one of the best defenses we've seen in the last five years. Right. So we're able, like, they're able to win. They were able to win the championship because they were able to win playoff games in completely contrasting styles. And as you said, that's what the Raptors are built to do because they have that kind of depth. And that's what I'm, my biggest concern with Philly is, is that I don't know how many different moves they have. You know, they have a great first punch, but what's the counter punch? Toronto has that and Boston has that. Well, two things on Philly. One, we have to determine if we're going to buy into the China effect, how long-lasting that effect is, and how much we should just sort of pump the brakes on any sort of long-term analysis on them. Oh, I'm not like – none of my analysis of that is based on stuff they've done in the beginning of this year. I think the China effect will be irrelevant. I mean the longest it could possibly last is until like the All-Star break, and I think it will probably be irrelevant by Christmas. Definitely, but I I, I do want to say though that I think think Philly – of all the sort of, let's say there's five contending teams, and we don't have to name them, but let's say out of all the sort of five dangerous teams, I think Philly is in the most desperate need of making some, like they probably could benefit the most from a Butler trade. Right. They're also a team that I would I would be hesitant to give up anything long term because I think they're going to be in a position to get someone maybe who's a better fit next yeah. to Simmons and Embiid. I mean, I think Butler would be a great fit, but... I don't think timeline. Yeah, I mean, oh my god, if they could sign Kawhi as a free agent, um, that'd be. Yeah. Should we, should we should we monitor what we think as the season progresses? What the percentages chance that Kawhi stays in Toronto is? Should we every pod to see if we've, we've changed our mind on what his percentage of staying in Toronto is? Um. So if at the beginning of the season it was like five percent, what do you think it is now? I mean, I think it's probably closer to like 15, 20%. I mean, I, the notion that like Kawhi, like there's no chance that he stays in Toronto, I think is idiotic. Guys, Toronto's awesome. For any of you people who, any of the like whatever amount of listeners are listening, have never, Toronto's great. I've never been. I would like to make a trip out there. Maybe. I've been briefly, and I've been to Montreal, and I've been briefly, and Toronto is just supposed to be an absolutely epic place. Very different from Montreal, to my understanding. Uh, 100% different. A and lot less French. A, well, a lot less French. It's also it's much more similar to an American city than Montreal. Montreal is much more similar to a European city. Are you saying but, that Montreal is not in America? Because actually, they're all North America, and the fact that we call the United States American is just very self-centered. Um, it is very self-centered. <laughs> but they uh, have a feeling of a, uh, of a North American city. But anyway, no, I think... I think um, I'd want to stay in Toronto. Well, more importantly, too, is just like, how does anyone, how could anyone possibly think they have any idea what Kawhi wants? Like, you also, totally, 100%. Um, like, I just don't know what this guy wants. And, you know, like, what is he, like, okay, he went to college at San Diego State. Or, like, do we really think this guy is just going to make his whole life decision on? Oh, well, Toronto was kind of cold in winter. I don't want to get it. And like, is that really what's going to hold him back? Because my understanding well, is San Francisco gets kind of fucking chilly. Maybe I'm projecting on the whole cold um, cold argument because I'm from Minnesota and I want to believe that people... Because I'm from... Most of their time in L.A. <laughs> they spend most of their time in L.A. anyway, in the offseason. Right. And then they're, tra- they're traveling for half the year anyway. Right. How often they're in that, and also Kawhi's, he's lost a lot of money from by not signing that contract with the Spurs, and he's going to lose even more money if he if he doesn't sign the five year deal. So I know he might not, that might not matter, but I don't know. Getting an extra sixty million dollars seems pretty nice. Right, I, I would, I like the extra sixty million dollars, and I would, yeah, and, and this is the kind of situation where even if Lowry, you have to move on from him in a couple years, maybe in a year or so. 
This is still a situation where I think they could be set up to be contenders for the next five years. Well, also Lowry's contract expires after next year. So at not he's not a free agent next summer, but the summer after that. Yes. So they could theoretically. I mean, why not? No one's ever talked about. No one's talked about this. But why not Toronto for Kawhi and Kevin Durant? Huh? Huh? <clears throat> That'd be cool. That'd be cool. No one. I think. You've heard it here. This is the first time someone has ever brought that up. Please credit us when Kevin Durant and Kawhi Absolutely. team up for the Raptors dynasty. Yeah, with, with general manager Drake. Yeah, there'd be like, if we had like a Toronto Lakers finals, or really any like California team. Which jersey would Drake wear? He'd wear Toronto probably, right? Um, He, would, he wouldn't wear any jersey. He'd wear like a very nice, no. he'd wear a cool sweater. And then whoever he'd wear both jerseys underneath, so and whoever won. It'd be purple won. too. It'd be purple because those both work for both teams. So that's true. Won, he'd be like, "Yeah, I was repping that team." And there'd just be a lot of jokes about like, "Ooh, who's playing the higher taxes in this one?" Darren Ravel would get a huge kick uh, out of it. Just a huge tax ever, boner. I want it to be the last time Darren Ravel is mentioned in this podcast. I actually have bad news that Darren Ravel is coming on the next podcast. Great. He's going to tell us. We just won't mention his name. He's going to tell us why Egypt is the worst country in Asia. It's in Africa, but. No, no, it, but that's. That's, oh, that's the joke. That's the, that's the hot take. Ooh. Ooh. Actually, part of Egypt is in Asia, so that kind of works. Wait, which part is? is? So, okay. So, Egypt has, um, like, what you, like, the Sinai Peninsula, like, Sinai, which is, so you have, like, this, um, Sort of, I'm trying to, if you ever look at a map of Egypt, anyone, most of it is in North Africa, but there's a split, and then the rest of it that connects to Palestine, Israel, and Jordan, that is in Asia, and that the that part that borders, um, like, Palestine, Israel, and Jordan, and then is across the Red Sea from Saudi Arabia, that is all in Asia. So it's one of the countries that is in two different continents. Oh, you somehow lived in both. See, I, I think that whole, I think that idea is so dumb. At, you're, you know... You're yeah. either you're either in Asia or you're in Africa. So when I was in um, so when I was in living in Istanbul, like I lived in the European side, but I, I went to school on the Asian side. So I, I would go to a different continent every morning for school. Casually. Casually, yeah. Um, I mean, don't you agree? Like you're either you're either European or you're Asian. <laughs> I mean, I. I well, or I mean, you're African or you're Asian. I, I mean, frankly, I also think that like. No, I mean, I think I think the idea of like just saying that you are a certain way based on like where you sit continentally is ridiculous. Why? Well, Why? Well, just saying that like I'm saying the country should be in a specific like the country needs to decide what continent it wants to be in. No, because continents are continents are are are, are like are actual just digital, like tangible geographic markers. They they're land masses. Right. So if a country so happens to be in two continents, which is I don't know the official amount, it's how many cotton, how many countries have, are in two different continents? Not a ton. What it'd be it's like? So is it like Turkey, Egypt, Russia, and then like maybe one of those like Central American things? Maybe. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I know for sure, and I've lived in two of them, and it's uh, it doesn't really. I don't know. But. I mean, I don't think it comes up at all. I mean, I also like am of the belief that like I think the Middle East should be its own little continent. No, why? Well, I mean, I I just don't like they like people from Iraq have nothing in pretty much nothing in common with like people from China or like Myanmar. Again, again, that's why I think looking at like uh, like like I think are I think referring to a country based on it, it, it's continental. Um, like like broadly continental location is is irrelevant, but that's why we have you know and helpful terms that's helpful like East Asian and African because once you start getting into regions of, of, of a continent, then you could start seeing you know like history, language, culture. For well, North Africa, it's a lot more similar than let's say like East Africa. Yeah, but just say like Africans here like. Egyptians versus, let's say, like people from Ghana are completely different. Very, very different. So Good. that was a sociological. 
That was a weird transition. Right. I don't. I don't know how we got on that. Honestly, we, we were there because we, well, Toronto's, you know, an international city, and it was sparking our our, our, our curiosity. Right, Toronto is really in two different continents. It's in the United States and it's in Canada. Um, <laughs> and Canada is all socialists like Europe. So, really, it's uh, it's North America and Europe. Stick to Kauai. Yeah. Kawhi is actually a big, like, Bernie Sanders and Karl Marx guy. No, Kawhi is... <laughs> Kawhi is your classic, like... So he's farther... He's, he's sort of like your class... He's like a Marxist Leninist kind of guy, but he doesn't really... He's sort of... Um, sort of keeps to himself, but you know there's, there's like, a immense amount of radical in him. Right. I would say yeah, I'm so more... He's, of... he's farther left than, like, Bernie. He just doesn't... He doesn't project it. Right. I would say I'm more of like a McCartney-Leninist. Um, yeah, I just let that joke sit. <laughs> nice. I like that. I'm gonna, that's good. You can steal that one for uh, yourself. Tell all your friends. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna use it. I'm, teaching, I'm teaching animal farming grade 10 because that's a out for the Russian Revolution. I'll slip that joke in there. That is uh, it's probably my favorite book I've ever read, but I, I, I don't remember a whole lot of it. I read it in eighth grade in like a day. Well, so it's, it's, it's an allegory of the Russian Revolution, um, for those who didn't know, and so it, it's Orwell's sort of commentary on, you know, the main character at the beginning, old major who dies, who's the leader, represents Lenin, and then you have two pigs that are vying for power, and Snowball, and Napoleon, and Trotsky, they're, they're one of the Stalin, and we know who wins that sort of battle, and then as you see the contrasting farm represents like Germany and these other European countries, it's just an allegory of how Orwell felt that the Russian Revolution was hijacked by Stalin and the political parties, and uh, was sort of this circular, circular sort of mode of oppression. So. Is, would you say it's fair of me to, to comment that I think it's a little bullshit that people reduce Animal Farm to just being a parody of the Bolshevik Revolution only in the sense that like Orwell used that revolution as like a template to talk about like all of society and shit like it wasn't so like I don't think you're under that impression but like my mom's ex-boyfriend I remember he talked about it as if it was just just a satire on that and nothing else it's just like, guy, there's a whole lot more going on here. Well, I mean, Orwell's big, and again, regardless of what you think of him, and there's there's legitimate critiques, and Orwell's big on, he's also a big, he's a big commentator on human nature and, and how humans are going to react to power and to, like, these societal issues that are always going to arise. And Animal Farm is, in many ways, although it is a sort of allegory of the Russian Revolution, it is Orwell's in his opinions, he uh, commentary on each character represents various members of society that he feels he needs to comment on through the imagery of animals. You think Orwell would be fun to get dinner with? Because like I, it sounds like you talk about like you know each character represents somewhat like a person in society he feels he need to comment on. I feel like he I feel like that mod not every single character obviously but yeah an animal farm for sure. So like because I feel like an, because it's an allegory. I feel like he, we, you'd be at dinner and like you'd be getting bread and he'd be like this is a representation of the greed. You just keep feeding yourself and you get hungry and hungrier for more power and more carbs. I think, I think it's Orwell after like three or four drinks. Yeah. Yeah. What are the criticisms think, of Orwell? I think Orwell? he tries to like hold. Well, I think I think there are. I think I think Orwell. Um, is definitely a very, it has strong political inclinations that if you don't, for example, Orwell in the 30s was a Trotsky act. Like Orwell was a socialist. Orwell was very much against communism and very much against certain other brands of, 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 of political ideologies. And so I think the, the criticisms of Orwell are largely, I mean, one, they could be literary. You could think he's not that good of a writer, that good of a storyteller. Um, and someone who spends their entire life Critiquing that might have that, um, and another and another would be just you know if you like Orwell is is very politically opinionated, and you might find yourself on the opposite end of his political opinions. So in that case, he he, he opens himself up to criticism, and again he's 
his interpretation of certain historical events are also his interpretation of certain historical events. He is not a he is not a he is not a sort of unbiased chronicle of history. He is an interpreter of history and sort of disseminating what he thinks the effect of this history is. So he's open to talk of criticism just by the very nature of his work. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I recently discovered I, I built some bookshelves earlier this week because I am with your bare hands. Uh, with my bare hands because I am manly but also literate. And nice. I I went through the books that I have and I remember I discovered a copy of Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged that I borrowed from my brother, and I a few years ago because I wanted to read it uh, to see what people were criticizing, and I got like ninety pages in and I had to stop because it's I just, an awful 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 book. It's like well like I only got to the, like the part I read like parts I read first of all it was just boring. That was the main part, was that, like, the writing was just fucking awful. But also, like, the plot to that point was, like, these businessmen were like, well, we could build a railroad if it weren't for that mean old dumb government. Ugh. Always getting in the way. Fuck them. How come they want people to be safe? My brother said that, like, the the apex of the book is, like, a... 50-page speech about, like, the dude, like, just reading off Ayn Rand's uh, philosophy. Yeah, that's, that's, your brother's right. How, like, thank God I got out early. Holy shit. Let's see, let's, let's, like, who, who, who loves, um, just see the people who love Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged to consider, like, their greatest books. It's, like, Paul Ryan and Mark Cuban. But Paul Ryan also loves Rage Against the Machine, and I love Rage Against the Machine. So, I, but I don't think it's because Paul Ryan refuses to actually like internalize what Rage Against the Machine is about, right? Like, or maybe he like he does it like in his mind, like he's talking about like Hillary Clinton and like Barack Obama. Yeah, they're the machine he's raging against. Yeah, it's, it's but no, don't read Anne. Yeah, that, that, yeah, don't, don't, you know, some people might be like, no, Anne Rand's, you know, a brilliant, no, she's not, she's, she's a bad author, and her, her politics are, as the kids would say, trash. 